Another great episode of Red Sea Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, redsearadio.org, and donate to our apostolate, or even become a member of our Immaculata Recurring Gift Society and keep us on the air. Thank you so much, and God bless you. It is Wednesday, it is June 7th, and you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais, and I have noticed that uh, since the last time I was on, Caleb and Dennis decided to change the entire schedule up, so I am totally confused as to what I'm supposed to do. But this morning, we have a wonderful show for you. In a moment, we're going to be speaking with Father James Misko, who is the Vicar General of the Diocese of Austin. And um, this uh, session is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your phone calls, but I still would like to welcome all our listeners on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn, Bryan College Station, and also our KYAR listeners on 98.3 FM in Lorena, Waco. And a shout out to all our listeners in Palestine on 104 FM. And uh, before I uh, go anywhere else, I would like to introduce everyone to Father James Misko. Father James, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Deacon Mike. Good to hear your voice. And it's a great Wednesday morning for sure. Now, I introduced you as the Vicar General, and I'm going to bet that a lot of people that are listening to this show have no idea what a Vicar General is. Would you explain that to us? Yes, of course. So the Vicar General is the priest who assists the bishop in the governance and day-to-day operations of the diocese. And in fact, I actually have two titles. One is called Vicar General, which is a canonical title. And the other title that I have is called Moderator of the Curia, and that's a really fancy way of saying Chief Operations Officer. So my role, I work here with Bishop Vasquez each day here at the Pastoral Center in Austin, and I assist him in the governance of the 127 parishes and missions across the diocese, but I also assist him in just the day-to-day operations of running the diocese. We have 95 employees here at the diocese, and there's about uh, 15 employees up at Cedar Break, which is our retreat center in, in Belton Temple. And then uh, we have about uh, 55, 60 employees with Catholic Charities. So all of those folks that are under the umbrella of Bishop Vasquez, I help him as sort of being the chief operations officer. One of the other things that uh, people might have known you by is the fact that you also assist the bishop in confirmation masses because, as you mentioned, there's 127 parishes and mission churches, and so it becomes a feat to try to make all those confirmations. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a, real, a real blessing for me. I mean, what a privilege it is that Bishop Vasquez asks me to represent him on those occasions. We, um, out of the 127 parishes and missions, not every parish has a confirmation every single year. But we have about 100 parish, uh, confirmations each year. So Bishop Vasquez does about 60 of them, and I assist him with 40 of them. And in fact, uh, the confirmation season is really during the spring. So 
these last six or eight weekends, um, I've been averaging three to four confirmations a weekend, and he has been averaging three to four confirmations a weekend. So we get them all done uh, within about a three-month period, four-month period in the spring. And I have to say, Deacon Mike, it is it is really one of the joys of my ministry to be able to go out and see all these different parishes and to 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 be part of the Holy Spirit confirming in these young people their baptismal identity. That's really what confirmation is. It's the Holy Spirit coming upon them and confirming what has happened to them at their baptism. So it's a real blessing, and I love going out and seeing the different parishes. Father James, now, would you tell us a little bit about not just your vocation story, but also your faith journey? What was it like for you as a a uh, young person growing up, and uh, what sort of led you to your vocation? Yeah, so I, I came from a very, very Catholic family, went to Mass every single Sunday, oftentimes even went to daily Mass. Uh, I, I can remember as a kid, my mom, you know, we'd be driving around running errands or something like that on a Tuesday afternoon, and she'd pull right into the church, and we'd go into the church. This was Unfortunately, this is when churches were always unlocked. I mean, uh, sometimes our churches are locked these days, but that's a different story for a different radio show. So anyway, she would pull in. I'd say, Mom, what are we doing? She says, we're just going to make a visit. I just I can remember those days going into a, a real quiet church with my mom, just spending five minutes in front of the Blessed Sacrament and then going back out to our car and going going about our business. And so I grew up in a very Catholic family uh, and then uh, ended up um, going to St. Edwards University here in Austin, I was the best mediocre baseball player in the history of St. Edwards. And so uh, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, but all through my life, my my mother and my, my father, very, very influential. I, I always say this, that the vocation is given by the mother. But how to live out that vocation is given by the father. And so that would be a good thing. I think my mother gave me my vocation to the priesthood. And I think my dad taught me how to be a good father. Priests are not, obviously, biological fathers, but there are many characteristics that priests have that good dads have. Uh, and so I learned a lot of that from my own father. So um, went to St. Ed's, graduated from St. Ed's, and uh, interestingly enough, I was working for the, a restaurant at that time called Macaroni Grill. I was a manager of Macaroni Grill, and I did that for about six years after graduation, graduating from college. And then when I was 30, same year our Lord began his ministry, I, uh, I just I couldn't stop thinking about being a priest, couldn't stop thinking about this kind of a life. Had thought about the priesthood ever since I was a kid and throughout high school as well. And I really, even when I was working in the restaurant, I was thinking about being a priest. And so when I was 30, I just I thought to myself, you know, I have to give this a shot. This, I believe, is what God is asking me to do. So I quit my work at Macaroni Grill and went to the seminary and, and haven't looked back since. Now, when you were working, did the idea that you might get married cross your mind, or was it pretty much that you were on a trajectory already towards that vocation even when you didn't know it? No, I think that I don't think that anyone, at least for me, it wasn't a decision of I'm 100 percent 
not interested in being married and 100% interested in being a priest. I think any human being thinks to themselves, well, what would it be like if I were married? I mean, this is a natural feeling that people have. And so uh, certainly before I went to seminary, I, I dated and, and discerned whether that was what God was calling me to do, to be a married person. But I think in the end, Deacon, um, I just felt the call to be a priest more than I felt the call to be married. I mean, I think that if someone becomes a priest and they absolutely could never imagine themselves married, um, I think that that, that uh, it, it doesn't give as much value to the sacrifice of being a celibate than if someone said, you know what, I could have gotten married and I think I would have had a wonderful life being married. But I felt called to this life more than I feel called to that life. And so I think for me personally, it's given value to my promise of celibacy, of chaste celibacy in the priesthood, knowing that I could have gotten married, but this is what I felt called to more. I was just, I was pulled to this. And 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 I actually have always said this, Deacon, that for a priest to have excellent examples of marriage in the parish is always something that gives value to his promise of celibacy, his promise of chaste celibacy. Because if the marriages that a priest observed in his parish were all on the rocks and all struggling, well, then the priest might say, wow, I really dodged a bullet on that one. But in fact, I think that when a priest says, when he sees outstanding marriages, it actually gives value to his decision to freely accept and to make that promise of celibacy. So for me, um, sure, I thought about it, but I was pulled to this life more than the married life. I think what you just said might be very helpful to a young person who is considering a vocation to the priesthood and is thinking, well, but I'm thinking about marriage, so I'm probably not priest material. And just that recognition that, you know, that's perfectly normal, but it's weighing which of those is the greater value for you and, of course, for God. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Deacon, I've even said sometimes before, you know, when a guy embraces celibacy and spiritual fatherhood, he still has many of the great opportunities of spiritual fatherhood that a biological father does. Think of the best dads, the best dads. What do they do? Well, they protect their family. They provide for their family. They uh, eat dinner with their family. They uh, spend time with their family. They pray with their family. Um, what do the best priests do? Well, they protect their families, their spiritual families. They provide for their parish families. They teach their parish families. They eat with their parish families. They spend time with their parish families. So in my life as a priest, Deacon, I have never once thought that I made the wrong decision. I really, I've had some tough days, just like everybody else does in marriages, in any vocation for that matter. I've had some difficult days, but I've never once regretted the decision because I have the opportunity to do so many of the same things that good dads do with my parish family spending time and providing for them and protecting them and teaching them and eating dinner with them. So 
it's been a great life, and, and I really feel fulfilled in that celibacy as a spiritual father. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup, and I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bovey, and our guest this morning is Father James Misko. He's the Vicar General of the Diocese of Austin. Father Misko, what would you say is the best part of being Vicar General? <laughs> that is a lo- that's a loaded question, Deacon. <laughs> <but> uh, <laughs> and the bishop well, might be listening. Be careful. Oh, no. The best part about being the Vicar General is I love helping Bishop Vasquez run the diocese. It gives me great, great satisfaction to know that the work that I do makes gives him the, the space to be able to be the bishop. Um, he couldn't possibly do all of the different tasks that need to be done, and this is why he delegates me to do some of those tasks for him. It could be something as simple as, oh, a parish wants to buy a piece of land, and there needs to be a real estate contract signed for that. And so I sign my name on his behalf on that line. Well, he can't be sitting around all day, you know, dealing with paperwork all day long. And so I find great satisfaction in being able to make his life um, easier, to, make, to, to give him space in his life to be and to do the things that a good bishop does. So I find that very, very uh, rewarding. Um, I also find it super rewarding when he asks my advice on something, a particular issue that's going on in the diocese. And I give him, I told him when, when he asked me to be the vicar general that I would always be honest with him. I'm just going to tell him what I think. And then I always say to him, Bishop, take what you want from what I offer uh, and use what best fits your your sentiment and your perspective and discard the rest. And so it's very, very satisfying, Deacon, when I give him a piece of advice and he actually uses that advice for his ministry. That's a very fulfilling uh, feeling for me. Um, I really like, uh, I really am, am very much interested in helping the parishes to see that the pastoral center and the diocese is an integral part of their lived experience. I mean, the reality of it is, Deacon, maybe you've heard this phrase before, all politics is local. Uh, Well, the reality of it is all ministry is local. It's, It's at the parish. And the ministry isn't happening at the pastoral center where the bishop and I and these 95 employees are. So I find it very, very satisfying when I can see that what we do here at the pastoral center actually manifests itself in a fuller lived experience of church in the parishes. So that's a, those are just three very, very satisfying things that I experience as the Vicar General. Now, on the flip side of this, what do you find most challenging about serving as Vicar General? Well, it's a very, it's a, it's a very busy job. Um, as you know, Deacon, priests are priests seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And so a vocation, same with being married, uh, same with being a deacon, when we embrace our vocations, uh, those vocations are our lives. You know, one of my favorite lines from a spiritual writer that I like to read, read something like this, until you find your true vocation in life, you're always trying to live. But when you do find your vocation in life, you stop trying to live and you just live. Uh, in fact, somebody asked Pope Francis once if he takes vacation, and he says he doesn't take any vacation because he's, he loves what he does. He says he takes a couple hours a day off each day, and that adds up to his vacation time. But I feel you know, very similar in the same way that I love what I do, 
but it is a lot of hours. I spend a lot of time um, because I love it. And I want to be attentive to Bishop Vasquez and his needs. And I want to assist him in a way that, again, gives him space to be the bishop. So that's probably the biggest challenge. It's very, very time consuming. Um, I can't say that I don't love it. I do. Uh, but it, it does take a lot of time. Now, we're going to segue a little bit into the main topic of our conversation. And I want to start with the 75th anniversary of the Diocese of Austin. And we began this last November with a wonderful celebration. And would you talk a little bit about the beginning of the 75th anniversary year? Yeah, so, so you know, we were coming out of the pandemic, Deacon, when we were coming up to our 75th anniversary uh, which was back November nineteenth uh, of twenty twenty two, and so actually I think it's November fifteenth of twenty. I don't have the document in front of me, so don't hold me to this, Deacon. But I'm pretty sure it's November fifteenth. And so we were coming out of the pandemic, and we thought to ourselves, "Wow, if we put on a big event here, uh, there's going to be some people who won't come because they're still a little bit wary of of the virus and and things like that." If you recall. Back in the early part of 2022, around March or April, we were still kind of in the thick of it. And then we kind of came out during the summer and it got better and better and better. So early on in the in the planning stages, we thought to ourselves, well, rather than just having one event, why don't we have two? When we have a, a an inaugural mass of the anniversary and then a closing mass and then in between, why don't we do some interesting things that highlight our our diocese? So that's what we ended up doing. So we had that, that kickoff mass at the Bell County Expo Center back in 2022, and now we are on a trajectory for our closing mass um, in on November 18th, Saturday, November 18th of 2023, and that's going to be at St. Williams Parish at 10:30 on that Saturday morning. Everybody is welcome to come and join us on that. So that's kind of how we launched it, and it was it was launched with a with a kind of a the idea of having a day of prayer. Everyone got there early in the morning for Mass at 8.30. Bishop Vasquez presided over a festival Mass at the Bell County Expo Center. There was about 2,500 people there. And then uh, we had Franciscan Father Dave Pavanka come and give a keynote address on uh, the mystical body of Christ, which was outstanding. And then we finished with a holy hour. And the reason we finished with that holy hour, Deacon, was because we wanted to be able to um, amplify that not only are we celebrating the 75th, but we are also being called to a Eucharistic revival. So we sort of integrated the two in that event, and they've been that way ever since uh, throughout our celebration of this one year uh, of anniversary time. Now, you mentioned that uh, the diocese wanted to maintain that connection between the 75th anniversary and the Eucharistic revival, and um, even down to the uh, catchphrase for both that they may all be one. Would you talk a little bit about how you see that connection between the 75th anniversary and that emphasis on the Eucharistic revival? Yeah, of course, uh, to our listeners, you all may not realize this, but Deacon Mike is actually one of the three deacons who is on our steering committee for the Eucharistic revival. So this is near and dear to Deacon's heart. So yeah, Deacon, um, you know, it comes from John 17, Father, that, that they may all be one as you and I are one. So we know that there is uh, this oneness that is effected 
by the Eucharist. You know, I'm 52, Deacon, and I still get confused by the word affect and effect. Um, the sacraments are the effective cause of grace. And what that means is an affect would be like makeup. You put this makeup on and you look different, but then at the end of the day, you take the makeup off and you look in the mirror and you're not different. You're the same. Or a hat or a, a, some sort of a costume. That's an affect. But an effect is something that actually changes who you are. And so in the sacraments, we are effected. God effects something in us. And so what is that effect? Well, the effect is oneness. Yeah, we have 127 altars in this diocese that celebrate Mass every day and all day on Sunday. And those are different places, no doubt. But the reality of it is, is it's, it's the one body of Christ. And we are the one mystical body of Christ. And so that's the effect of the Eucharistic revival, is that we come to know our oneness. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not different. And it doesn't mean that there's not diversity in that oneness. There is. Um, but there's unity in that diversity. And so we wanted that to be the theme, not only of our 75th anniversary, but also of the Eucharistic revival, that this is one local church. It's not 127 individual churches. No, it's one local church with one shepherd. His name is Bishop Joe Vasquez, and the priests represent him in the parishes, and the deacons assist him in the parishes, and the people of God are one people of God held together by the Eucharist. So that's kind of how we wanted to approach both the anniversary as well as the Eucharistic revival. I find it interesting listening to you speak on this that, you know, so often we lose sight of that, that, you know, our individual parishes are there to basically hear the bishop's vision for his domestic church, his, I mean, his uh, uh, local, local church. church. And so that, you know, we get, oh, I don't know, uh, focus so much on, well, this is, you know, this parish does this, this parish does that, this parish does something else. But ultimately, it should be that all of them are working towards what the bishop's goals are for his diocese. Yeah, you think about this, Deacon, you remember this from, I'm sure, your history classes when you were in Deacon formation. So if we go all the way back to the first century of the church, there would have been one bishop in that city, and like the Bishop of Jerusalem, the Apostle James was the Bishop of Jerusalem and in the first century. And there wouldn't have been seven or eight or ten or fifteen different parishes in that local church. It would just been the Church of Jerusalem. And in fact, if you go back in history, it's the deacons that were created before the presbyters, the priests. And so the deacons were established so that uh, the widows and the orphans would be taken care of, and that's sort of code for the poor. And so to this day, deacons are called to assist and proclaim the word at Mass, to be custodians of the Eucharist for those who cannot come to Mass, those who are sick or are shut-ins, and then in service to the poor, the widows and the orphans. Um, and so that bishop, he was the priest of that local church. Well, then as the church began to grow, and there was maybe two different Eucharists, celebrated in that area, or three, or four, or five, or six, that's when they needed to have uh, presbyters. 
and the presbyters represent the bishop in every parish, but the deacons serve the bishop in every parish. And so um, we should always remember where we came from because that tells us who we are today. One church with one high priest, the bishop. And I think this sort of then goes back to that motto of that they may all be one. That idea reminding all of us that the diocese is celebrating the oneness of the local uh, church and also the oneness that comes from receiving that Eucharist. But isn't it interesting, uh, Deacon, whenever like you think about even when you're traveling around the country or around the world, isn't it always fascinating to go to Catholic churches all over the place? Because ultimately the universal church is one. It's one of the marks of the church, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. We know that from our catechism. And so this this oneness, this union with one another in Christ, it can be experienced everywhere. This is why it's so great to go around our diocese. I'll tell you, Deacon, you you ask me what's so great about being the vicar general. That is one of the true blessings, is that whether I'm doing confirmations for Bishop Vasquez or just going around and helping out priests, it is such an incredible privilege to be able to go from parish to parish to parish. And, you know, my brother priests, they don't get that privilege because they're they are taking care of their own parish. Um, and sometimes people might ask me, well, don't you miss being a pastor? And there are some things that I do miss about being a pastor. But if I were a pastor in my own parish, I wouldn't have the privilege to be able to see the one mystical body of Christ. I'll give you a great example. This weekend, I had three different masses I said Mass at St. Helens in Georgetown on Saturday morning for confirmation. I said Mass at 1 o'clock at St. Williams in Round Rock for confirmation. And then I said Mass on Sunday at 1 o'clock at St. John's in Luling, Texas. Very, very small church in a small town. But all three of them, I mean, 175 confirmandi at St. Williams and 15 confirmandi at St. John's in Luling. And yet I had the same deep sense of unity and oneness at both of those very different communities. So, yeah, so that's just, it's just an incredible, incredible privilege. And I, I really want to encourage our, our listeners, Deacon, that when you're traveling around the diocese, go to Mass at another parish and experience what that is and, and see if you can feel that oneness with that other parish. Before we move on to the next question, I want to remind our listeners again, we're speaking with Father James Misko, the Vicar General of the Diocese of Austin. And Father James, we were talking about this oneness, and one of the things that I have noticed is um, I grew up in Germany and remember going to Mass there, and then if I travel somewhere and I go to Mass there, the beautiful thing about our Catholic faith is that it will always be the Mass. And this is something that I cannot imagine, you know, again, speaking about this oneness, uh, you know, I could not imagine leaving the Catholic Church because there is nothing like it anywhere else. Yeah. And when you think about that, Deacon, you think about how incredible is it that under the appearance of bread and wine, that it is the body and blood of Christ. I mean, you think about this, we're in this Eucharistic revival, and ostensibly, Deacon, we're being called to to cultivate a deeper appreciation for the fact that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ on the altar, and that's good. I mean, that's ultimately kind of the first 
the first movement of this Eucharistic revival. But I propose to you that an even more important component of that cultivation of a deep awareness of the presence of Christ in the body and blood, in the bread and the wine, is not just what happens on the altar, but what happens when you consume the body of Christ, when I consume the body of Christ. What literally happens to the body of Christ? You know, you think about this, imagine like you're distributing the, the body of Christ at Holy Communion down in the front of the sanctuary. And from time to time, this happens accidentally. A host flips out of the ciborium and falls on the ground. Well, what do we all do when that happens? Well, we all stop immediately and we, we take sincere care of that host. We pick it up and we make sure there's no particles on the ground and, and we preserve that because it's the body of Christ, right? We would never just walk past it and say, oh, well, there's a host on the ground, no big deal. No, we would, we would take immediate action if that happened. But I wonder to myself, Deacon Mike, if we have the same attentiveness to what happens to the host when we consume the host. What happens to the host? We, we place our Lord into our own bodies. And while it's under the accidents, while it's under the appearance of bread and wine, however long it takes before it absorbs into our bodies, at least for a short period of time, it is literally contact with God. You and God become one. And that's where we begin to understand St. Augustine's words when he says that it is in the Eucharist that we become what we consume. That there's this moment where the distance between you and God is so so close that you can't tell where you end and God begins. This, I think, is really what the fruit of the Eucharistic revival is, so that we begin to understand who we are and whose we are. So going back to your idea of going you're in Germany and going to Mass there in Germany, or we travel all over the world and you think to yourself, God, what would life be like if we didn't have the Eucharist? You know, Deacon Mike, it might be this, it might be this specific. It might be the Eucharist that is the only thing in the world that's actually keeping us together as 7.5 billion people on the planet. That Think about that. That's pretty deep thought that of everything that keeps us together as one, it might actually be the Eucharist. And I think that is a beautiful image for all of us to keep in mind. And uh, I've said this numerous times that, you know, there's a reason that uh, we refer to the evil one as the divider because everything that separates us in any form or fashion is with his encouragement. And the Eucharist is exactly the opposite. The Eucharist is a constant reminder of unity, of that oneness. And if we stick with that idea that, you know, what you were saying, that's what can hold the world together. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously, you know, Deacon Mike, I don't know if you do this whenever you're helping couples in your ministry at, at the parish, but whenever there's a couple that is on a rocky, rocky place in their marriage and they're struggling and maybe they're coming to me for counseling or, you know, they're thinking about a divorce, I always tell them to do this. On Saturday afternoon, go to confession. And then immediately go to the vigil mass and receive Holy Communion. And, and I explained to them what I just said to you about how 
when we receive the body of Christ, we become one with Christ. Now, think about it this way, Deacon. I love that passage from the New Testament where it says that Christ holds all things together in himself. Now, that is not just a poetic turn of phrase that we listen to and think, oh, wow, that's such a beautiful line in Scripture. No, it, it's we, the word is effective. The Scripture takes effect in us. So what, is the, what does that mean, that Christ holds all things together in himself? It means that he holds all 100 billion galaxies in the universe together in himself. It means that he holds all things and all people together in himself, which means that when we consume the body of Christ, we somehow have contact, we have literal contact with Christ. But theologically, because he holds all things together in himself, we are coming into communion with all things that he holds together in himself, including our, our the closest people to us and the people that we might discern are not close to us at all. Maybe, maybe a way to put it would be that there can be no distance in the Eucharist. There is no division in the Eucharist. So I always use that as a, a great, just a moment of reconciliation for people to go to confession and go to Holy Communion and be one together. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And I th think that's something that, you know, anyone dealing with uh, couples in the Catholic Church might want to consider at least uh, emphasizing, you know, even when they're not struggling, but that idea that, you know, if there's problems of any kind, resort to the Eucharist. Yeah. You know, isn't there, I think there's a beautiful passage in the New Testament, Deacon, you might know the passage, it's, it's, it's slipping my mind now, but the passage that says that if you have any problem with anyone in the community, go and make amends before and then go to Holy Communion together. I mean, this is why the church has the confidior, the uh, penitential rite. The penitential rite actually forgives venial sin when we receive Holy Communion. Um, confession is for devotion, for sure, but it's also for mortal sin. But when we go to Mass and we say the confidior and the deacon or the priest leads us in the Kyrie, and then we go through Mass and have Holy Communion, that is reconciliation. That is oneness. That, that, that dispels the division that the evil one wants the world to experience. So talk about if we want to be in union with one another, there is no better way than Holy Communion. Now, before we run out of time, we have about eight minutes left. I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the last year of uh, the Eucharistic Revival is going to culminate with a Eucharistic Congress in July. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So, so you know, Deacon, I'm sure that you talk to your folks about this all the time up there, and maybe even on this radio show, that, you know, several years ago, the bishops called for this Eucharistic revival because there was this evidence that people were struggling with uh, cultivating a deep sense of, of appreciation for the transubstantiation that occurs on the altar at Mass. But we know that um, that that recultivation of, a, of an appreciation for that should push us out into the world to be the body of Christ for the world. Well, as part of that, um, we are called to 
to, to preach. We're called to go out and proclaim the good news. And what is the good news? Well, this union is the good news, oneness with God. That I mean, think about it this way, Deacon, that God thinks so highly of us that he, by choice, out of preference, chooses to become one with us in the Eucharist. This is incredible. We think we're choosing him, but in fact, he chooses us. And we know that from Scripture when Jesus says, it is not you who choose me, it is I who choose you. So there is this public sense of the Eucharistic revival, and that is made most manifest in things like Eucharistic processions around parishes and throughout communities, but also on a national level, this this Eucharistic Congress that we're going to have. There is great history of having Eucharistic Congresses in the United States back as you know as late as the 1850s and 1920s and 1970s. So we're going to all gather at the football stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana, where the Colts play, and there's going to be about 80,000 people for five days. To really, it's almost like kind of going on a retreat together for five days with 80,000 people, and it's all going to be centered on the theology of the Eucharist and the celebration of the Eucharist. So it's in July of 2024, the first week of July, and we're really looking forward. We're going to be sending a delegation from the pastoral center, from the diocese, but there are people from our parishes that are going to go as well. Bishop Vasquez and I are going to be up there, and so it's just going to be a great time to to really be to be very public and to be very much evangelical in the way that we share our love and devotion for this incredible gift from God that he wants to be one with us. Um, are there already tickets available for this? Yeah, so Camille Garcia is our communications director here at the diocese, and she has secured 200 tickets. I think maybe 60 have already been purchased at a discounted rate. But she also has the information of how to go, I think there's a, a, a website for the National Eucharistic Congress where people can buy tickets themselves. Now, of course, it's going to be crowded, but it, it's not going to be any different than when there's an Indianapolis Colts game. There's, you know, 75,000 seats, so there's going to be 75,000 people there. And that in the city of Indianapolis, they have plenty of hotel rooms to do that. But maybe you even know somebody who lives in the area and you can stay with them. So I'm sure you can get tickets online. But Camille Garcia at the Diocese of Austin, uh, she has the, the ability to, to secure some tickets for you if you'd like to go. And I would hope that at least some of our listeners have perked up at this and go, you know, that is something that I would like to do. Uh, a lot of the local you parishes... Know, you know, Go ahead. You know, Deacon, something I recommend that people do is is go online, go to like Google and just Google Eucharistic Congress and go to images and you'll see like there was one at Soldier Field in Chicago. I think it was back in the 1920s and the entire stadium of Soldier Field is filled with these with Catholic with faithful and they're having mass together. And so in 50 years, people are going to look back at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis in 2024 and say, oh, yes. I was there, or my my, parent, my my grandfather was there, or my mom and dad were there, or my priest was there. So my thought on this, Deacon, is that people shouldn't let this slip through their fingers. This will be a historic event that will be looked back upon 100 years from now, and it'd be good to be a part of that. Yes, and I cannot see a better way of getting a sense of being one with the entire community in the United States, the Catholic community, as being part of something like this. Absolutely. Now, we've only got about uh, two and a half minutes left, so before I let you go, 
would you tell me just the, briefly what you would like to have uh, our listeners get out of both the 75th anniversary and the Eucharistic revival? Yeah, I would say that uh, the 75th anniversary, this is a celebration of the local church. And uh, the local church is the diocese. And as I mentioned earlier in our in our conversation, Deacon, if you go back 2,000 years, there was just one church and the bishop and then all the faithful. And it was because the church grew that he needed representatives in other parishes in his local church. But this is a great opportunity for us, realizing how important each parish is, and they are. But this is a great chance for us to know, to, to acknowledge that we are part of one local church, the Diocese of Austin, and then Eucharistic Revival Deacon. I mean, I think that it just goes without saying that it's just an incredible, just an incredible reality that God chooses out of preference to be one with us. You know, I think back on that beautiful story of Doubting Thomas. Thomas misses seeing Jesus at one of his appearances. Then he sees him at the next one, and Jesus says, Thomas, come and touch my hands and touch my feet and touch my side. And he does. And then he says, my Lord and my God. 2,000 years have passed, and the opposite happens. Jesus reaches out of time. He reaches out of infinity, and he wants to touch your hand. He places himself in your hand. And that is an incredible turn of events where Thomas touches our Lord's hands, and now our Lord touches our hands in Holy Communion. That is an incredible thing to think about. And I really think that, you know, the effort of the Eucharistic revival hopefully will make people look at the Eucharist in those types of terms that you just described, because it is such an awesome experience to think that Jesus reaches through space and time to touch us. Well, we're going uh, going to have to cut this short. Uh, Father James, thank you so much for being on the program. I hope that everybody uh, learned a lot, especially about the 75th anniversary and the Eucharistic revival. We're going to be back on the other side of the break with part two of the Red Sea Roundup. <laughs> 